silence in us any voice but your own gracious God and into that silence might your word come to comfort, to agitate, to provoke, to guide, to transform. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to John, beginning at the 29th verse of the first chapter. Let us hear God's word. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, perhaps your late 2016 experience was akin to mine. That even though I know it's not statistically verifiable, it seemed as if famous people were dying at an accelerated pace, at an alarming pace. Perhaps it's the nature of celebrity and media these days that it will continue to seem like a great volume simply because more people are famous and we have ways to know about them much differently than ever we have before. Still, how many people did you hear say, for this reason and others, I can't wait for 2016 to be over? Here's a partial list, a very partial list. There were 
entertainment icons, David Bowie and Leonard Cohen and Merle Haggard and Gene Wilder and Debbie Reynolds went Eiffel in her own dignified way. There were literary icons, Umberto Eco and Harper Lee. There were sports icons, Muhammad Ali, who became more than a famous athlete. There was coach Pat Summit, who did the same, Arnold Palmer, Gordy Howe. Political icons, Janet Reno and Fidel Castro and Antonin Scalia. There were category of one icons, transcendent icons, Elie Wiesel. There were my personal icons from my generation or my life, Carrie Fisher, of course. I'm a product of the Star Wars era and losing Princess Leia, who was so much more than Princess Leia, felt like a personal loss, as did the death of Prince, as did the death of John Glenn, who was an astronaut and a senator, which is cool enough, but more importantly than that, he was from New Concord, Ohio, and he was a Presbyterian elder. <laughs> what I've been thinking about as I ponder that list is the nature of renown, or the difficult paths taken to get there, I thought about Gwen Eiffel fighting against both racism and sexism to ultimately occupy a distinguished role in the journalistic universe. Or Muhammad Ali, a terribly gifted boxer, perhaps the greatest, whether then you agreed with him or not, who became an articulate opponent of racism and the Vietnam War, who became an articulate proponent of religious diversity and a touching champion of Parkinson's disease. Or Elie Wiesel, who almost single-handedly through his writing and through his very person kept the horrors of the Holocaust in front of generation after generation. In secular terms, they made the most of what they had been given. They defied the odds. And for some of them, especially, their contributions to peace and justice and reconciliation will far outlive them. I am grateful for their lives. But I'm also intrigued by how they made it from a secular standpoint or from a faith standpoint, how they followed their call. Now, I'm not a tattoo person. Not a Pinterest person either, but if I were either of those two things, here are some iconic signposts for me. One will be something that the theologian Frederick Beekner said one time. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And poet Mary Oliver concludes her wondrous poem called A Summer Day with the question, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
It's easy when looking at one of those in memoriam lists of famous people or talented people or accomplished people to deflect Beekner's observation and Oliver's question onto them to say quickly, well, well, I could never be as famous of a writer as Harper Lee or as distinguished of an attorney as Janet Reno. I certainly am not ever going to be John Glenn. But the more interesting question, and I think the more faithful one, is quickly to dismiss how can I be like them and rather answer that question for yourself or for myself. That is to say, how do I connect my deep gladness with the world's deep hunger? What will I do with my one wild and precious life and not someone else's? How can I, a unique and beloved child of God, blessed with unique gifts by that same God, how can I follow? And when things don't go smoothly, when doors seem to close and no windows open, when clarity about gladness and hunger is elusive, what do I do? How do I follow? Well, for people of faith, and more specifically for we who follow Jesus, it begins with baptism. Last week, Lynette reminded us of Jesus' baptism. There are many takeaways from that story. There are times when we treat baptism as the thing that saves us, that somehow punches our heavenly golden ticket. It's not that. It is a seal that confirms what already is, and a sign that points us in a new direction. Every sermon in some ways could be a baptism sermon, but the real question is, what do we do with our baptisms? How can we leverage the promise of our baptism to pursue our calling? How can we rely on our baptism when the pathway is unclear? How can we lean into our baptism in those moments when we are anything but glad? When we feel like we don't know what to do with our life or feel that it's anything but wild and precious. We remember our baptism. It is the only credential we'll ever need. It is our invitation, it is our mandate, it is our gateway. We remember our baptism and then we follow. But how? How? Many are asking that question and are asking it again in very real ways. How do I follow? What do I do? Well, the early disciples' narrative sets a rhythm for us. Our gospel lesson is in two movements this morning. Pay attention to the first. John the Baptist reflects on who Jesus is. He testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. And then the next day, John sees him again. There's the Lamb of God, he shouts out. And a group of John's disciples are curious. They are they're curious. It is a curiosity ignited by John's identification, and, and they follow Jesus. It's as simple as that. 
There's no long internal debate on their part, no weighing the pros and cons of their decision. They follow Jesus. And a tremendous interaction follows. Jesus, what are you looking for? They asked him where he was staying. Come and see, he says. Notice that Jesus rarely answers questions. He often redirects them. It is so annoying sometimes. Come and see, he says. And they did. They followed Jesus to come and see and were never the same again. Come and see. And we do. We follow. Now note, there's no interview. No reference checks, no credit report, no audition. There's, there's not even an election to be a disciple. Come and see. I don't know about you, I want to know so much more about those who seemed to drop everything and follow him. But what we do know is that they were everyday people, uncredentialed in every way except the most important credential, the credential we share with them, an invitation to come and see, and a promise, a baptismal promise, that you will have everything you'll ever need to do what I call you to do, and I will be with you. Gail O'Day writes that the verb to follow operates on two levels. It has a literal meaning in the storyline, but it also serves as a metaphor for discipleship. And so the double meaning makes Jesus' question more than just one of asking directions. O'Day asks the question, what do people seek when they follow Jesus? What were these disciples looking for in their lives? What did their moment need that following Jesus could offer? What are you looking for when you follow Jesus? What am I looking for? You'll provide your answer, I'll provide mine. It may be in part because of your background, your established, inherited family pattern, and even now you're here. So why? Your answer will be yours, mine will be mine, but perhaps it goes something like this, that you have heard about or read about this Jesus and you are searching. You are looking for meaning in your life, for a way to connect with your deep question, your deep journey, and something about his question, what are you looking for, and his invitation, come and see, has made you a follower. It doesn't mean you have it all figured out. Theologically or autobiographically, heavens no. It means you are compelled, intrigued, drawn in some way in your mind or in your heart or your soul. It means something has connected hunger and bliss. Something has been catalyzed in your quest to live your life. And this week, when we remember Martin Luther King Jr., we remember his words about following his call. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step.
I'm compelled by that. I am compelled by the chemistry of risk and uncertainty and hope that goes with any of us when we seek to follow Jesus, especially when it leads us to something new, something uncertain, even something a little bit scary. How on earth could any of the disciples have known what they were getting into? So how, therefore, on earth can we? So we trust. We trust the God who calls us. We trust Jesus who invites us. We, we trust the Holy Spirit who gives us the gifts we need. And when things don't work out, and there will be moments and seasons when they don't, we double down on trusting God, not in a cross-your-fingers-make-a-wish kind of way, but in a, in a roll-up-your-sleeves way. To get back at it, the very hard work of discernment, the rarely linear work of figuring out what will I do when I grow up. The breathtaking work of seeking hunger and blisses intersection. Of getting a glimpse of what it looks like and even for a moment to live that wild and precious life. Maybe following Jesus is the work we do for money our jobs, helping or changing or agitating or organizing or educating. Maybe the work we do for money is the thing we do that enables us to follow our journey when we're not working for money. I often worry that our culture works hard to equate work and worth, work and identity. That's a big mistake. Jesus calls a rich array of people to do a rich array of things. Hunger and bliss might meet in a volunteer job or a factory job or in parenting. Hunger and bliss might meet from 9 to 5, but it also might meet when the work day is ended. The key is to follow and to trust, even when both can seem so very difficult. How we follow and what we're looking for are always important questions, but they seem particularly important right now, do they not? In this moment, this week, many are wondering what to do, how do I respond, how do I exercise my gifts and follow my call boldly and radically to make a difference now? Some of you will march. Some of you will volunteer with renewed conviction. Some of you will read an article or have a conversation and be activated in a new way. Some of you will follow with crystal clarity and with undaunted conviction. Some of you will stumble hesitantly, no direction known. Some of you will work harder. Some of you will seek new work. All I can say is remember your baptism and echo the pattern of the first disciples. Ask a simple question, receive a simple invitation, and be prepared to follow. Take the first step. There are no guarantees, but there is a promise. He is the way 
Auden wrote, He is the way. Follow him through the land of unlikeness. You will see rare beasts and have unique adventures. And you will. And you'll never be the same. Amen.